Hello and welcome to the podcast where we shine a light on the complexities and challenges surrounding the importance of human behaviour on cybersecurity and compliance. That's right, we're talking about people being at the centre of information security and data protection and the challenges of engaging users to create change in their behaviour. This is Beyond the Firewall. Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name's David McClelland, and today we are all about controlling the chaos when things start to go wrong, which is a cue, if ever there was one, to welcome today's guests. Meta-compliance CEO and author of Cybersecurity for Dummies, Robbie O'Brien. Hello, Robbie. Hi, David. How are you keeping? I'm keeping very well indeed, and I'm delighted to welcome today's extra, extra special guest because they're all special, but this one's extra, extra special. It is Chief Security Advisor for Microsoft in Europe, Sarah Armstrong-Smith. Hello, Sarah. How are you doing today? Hi, David. What an introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know you're going to live up to it. First of all, though, just tell us a little bit about, uh, about you and about your work, Sarah. Yeah, well, let me roll the clock back. So I'll show my age now. So I've been working in technology for over 20 years. And I kind of started off from a fraud perspective. I always kind of, my clock starts, so to speak, round around the millennium bug. Mm -hmm. And that's really how I got into sort of working in business continuity. And then from there, it kind of pivoted from business continuity to disaster recovery into cybersecurity, data protection, privacy, and kind of overrunning all of that is, is crisis management. Um, so I've been working at Microsoft for 18 months. I've actually spent my career in lockdown, which has been quite interesting. But my role, in essence, is to liaise with strategic and major customers across Europe. So that tends to be C-suite, so CISO, CIOs, that kind of thing. And it's from a couple of perspectives. So it's really to understand their challenges with digital transformation, cloud adoption, but really the big thing that's keeping them up at night is cybersecurity. So, <laughs> and I'll be touching into a little bit of that uh, today. Why don't we dive into some of that straight away, Sarah? And obviously, we're talking about incident management and, and controlling this chaos. So, ho hopefully, our discussion isn't too chaotic today. But how do you sum up some of these? digital challenges that organizations are facing at the moment you know why have particularly the cyber incidents why have they increased in frequency increased in magnitude why have they become such a big problem i think when we look back at the pandemic so let's go roll back 18 months when this all kind of started and and i think at the early days of the pandemic it was all about availability it was all about trying to get people up and running as quickly as possible but when we talk about crisis management we talk about business continuity i can't imagine that as many companies that had an, an 18 month plus pandemic in their plan and that's really kind of brought a number of issues and things that have perspective so that shift to homework that kind of lockdown it just kind of brought about the fragility that we have in the supply chain and how interconnected we are um, but if we kind of think about it from a cyber security perspective so not only had we shift to remote work we had the challenges then of how do you have all multiple devices lots of applications and services stress of people trying to homeschool and, and do all these things at the same time. So they've had to contend with all of these things 
plus different policies, processes. And as I sort of said, the security governance maybe wasn't there at the start of the pandemic because it was a real rush in terms of just getting people online and getting services available to them. But during this period, the cyber criminals have really taken advantage of the situation and arguably it's been relentless. So, you know, from our perspective, we said, well, surely through a pandemic, you would not go after frontline services. You wouldn't attack a hospital. You wouldn't attack emergency services. But they did. (laughs) (laughs) And they've really demonstrated the kind of a a recklessness, if you like, about that willingness to go that one step further. And I really kind of think about it is cyber criminals love a crisis and, and what a crisis we've had. So, so during this period, I think the most common attacks is still phishing. We've seen a real massive increase in ransomware. In particular, some of the ransomware, the organized crime, that they're really kind of at an enterprise scale with the way that they're operating on a very similar scale to nation states just with regards to as I sort of say how far they're willing to go but probably the most financially impactful cybercrime is being business email compromised and when you kind of think all of these things together it really has kind of bring that chaos as we've been talking about it's just you know it's it's relentless it's it got all of these things to contend with so so what do you do <laughs> what do you do well those indeed are are the challenges and and then the challenge is as you put it very well what do you do when if when the worst does happen and of course in the words of one of the best movie theme tunes of all time who are you going to call robbie robbie would you know who to call and maybe when to call them if something weird that doesn't look good were indeed to break out in your neighborhood i hope so i hope so <laughs> but i think the 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 problem is in most organizations i think the majority of people don't know who to call and from an organization perspective the last thing you want is an incident with the potential impact of of a, of a ransomware or bc incident for that to go and enter your queue system on your support desk to be resolved by you know first line support and go through second line support and third line support just is a recipe for disaster i think the other thing about it is that it's hard to imagine the sickening feeling that people get when they click that link and that message appears on their screen it's akin to having a motor a motor accident in your car i mean you're sick at your stomach and really people then are in full emotional flight and not only do you have a situation of they don't know who to call but you pour emotion on top and fear and panic on top of that and they're most likely to do the worst thing that you want them to do so one of the things that uh, happened in a recent very large scale very public data breach that we were involved with is that people started turning off their 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 systems which actually wasn't accommodated within the ransomware program and even though there was a resolve to it because they turned off the system the machines were f- effectively toasted and then on top of that you go well that's that's bad that's really bad that's the big challenge isn't it well it is but there's another challenge which is here in Europe we have 72 hours before you have to notify the authorities of that data breach i find that's the thing that gives executives most heartburn because they indulge in wishful thinking and this couldn't be that bad or surely someone else has done it and and 
And if you haven't put into place the processes or you haven't, you know, uh, gamed this in a, a, you know, in a table exercise or whatever, you tend to find that you make the thing much more difficult because you're asking your management to make this up as, as they go along. So I think it's a positive thing that we mentioned business continuity because I think that's where, where, and it's interesting, Sarah's uh, career movement very much reflects my own. Go back 15 years, we were talking about how far a 747 jet could bounce. And I think it was seven miles if, if a, a plane crashed. You couldn't have a data center seven miles from the other uh, data center in case, you, you know, bad luck and you took out two. But I think the threats have evolved to something that is much more real, present, and you know, pervasive within every organization. And so we've moved on. But if you go back to those days, there was some outrageous amount of planning, be it around ITIL 4 or MOF, the Microsoft Operations Framework, which, which was one I, I prefer because it was much more understandable. But you had a framework and a, and, a, and a background with which you could plan your approach to this. For us, the fundamental issue is that there's people in the middle but that's the bit that hasn't really got a, a MOF framework or a little framework. And that's, I think, the big challenge for people. How do you get people in? How do you tell them who do they call? Uh, what should they do? And here's the kicker. For every organization, it's unique to them. You just mm-hmm. can't send out a bland, everybody should call this number or everybody should ring this person. For every, every organization, it's almost like a fingerprint. And you have to go and create that and work out your internal processes yourselves, particularly if you're a global organization, because you typically find that there is a different set of scenarios in the different regions. I'm fast forwarding to the end. I, I, I want to come back onto, onto that process and you know the, the, the methodology, the framework, if there is one, on how to respond when something goes wrong. But then there's also a human culture thing in here as well. And we spoke about people's responses, emotional responses, irrational responses, unless they've got a a framework within which to work. But there's also accountability after the event. And another human emotion there is blame. And we've spoken about this, uh, about the blame game before, Robbie. And I know, Sarah, that blame culture is something you focused on a lot in your work. And that's the thing, in a crisis, a human instinct is to try and avoid or to shift the blame. And that must only get amplified in high pressure environments, in high pressure situations like a crisis. Yeah, you're really right there, David. As I said, if I think back through a lot of the incidents of crisis management, but even when you see some of these big events that are kind of being played out in the public domain, and I think there is a tendency, as you said, to to want to point fingers, to, to hold someone to account But I have a real problem, I have to say, with blaming people, calling people the weakest link. You know, there's various things that we have sort of said over time. And I just feel it's too easy to just sit there and blame people. And in my view, and when you kind of look back, it's really not the people that are the problem. It's the process that's the problem. And it's the kind of the, it's the process that we've developed over time. It's the technology and all of these things that have been put into place, but have not been really around how do we keep people secure? How do we keep people safe? Now, with the type of things we've just been talking about, 
you know, we should be assuming that we're going to be attacked. We should assume some kind of failure. And it's our job to make sure that we understand that changing risk profile. So if we utilize the example of phishing, business email compromise, even ransomware, the cyber criminals are using the power of persuasion. So the whole messaging, the whole way they act is designed to catch people out. And it's designed to make people panic. And in particular, again, if we think about the pandemic, at the beginning, we saw a huge number of COVID-19 related phishing laws. So they pretend to be your bank, they pretend to be charity, they might be pretending to offer you some kind of support, but they know, as we sort of said, they relate to a crisis. And it's really around them trying to get you to do something and this is why phishing this is why business email compromise works so well and this is part of their game plan so if even if you think about ransomware their objective is to have this played out into the public domain so you've got added pressure coming from you from customers the media all of these things and it's all designed to try and back you into a corner so that you feel like you've got no option but to pay but to do these things it's very easy just to say to people well, you clicked the link, you did this. How could you fall for this scam? How could you fall for this fraudulent activity? But that is the, as I sort of say, that is the aim and the objective of the cyber criminal. So it's our job to understand that, to manage that risk and to assume that for the best will in the world, the best education, all of these things combined, people are gonna click the link, then they're human, that's the problem. So people will make mistakes. It's really therefore, as you saw quite rightly said, it's then about changing it from a blame culture to a culture that really enables people that they can come forward that there's no fear of retribution that they're willing to and able to admit their mistakes they can come forward because the problem is when they feel like they can't do that the the issue just extrapolates and as we know the incidents don't just happen out of nowhere there's normally been a catalogue of events that have led up to this and we can probably go back and say there were so many opportunities to have done better there were so many warning signs there were so many opportunities that we could have fixed the problem and it all really does stem down to culture and how do we remove this kind of this philosophy that we've we've built around people and people being the weakest link as i say so people not the weakest link the culture perhaps the the weakest link that that needs to shift yeah i, I think sarah and mentioned this uh, when we talked before, which is that if executives were prepared to think the unthinkable, what, what that means is getting over the plausible deniability, getting over the fear, and actually saying, as organizations do with, with financial risk, they, they, they go, well, you know, how much liquidity should we have in case this happens? They don't do that in relation to this last line of defense. And if you were to think the unthinkable, if you were to invest the time in saying, this is what we stand for. We stand for, for example, zero tolerance in this area, because guess what? If we're taken down, our business is over. It's terminal. If you get to that unthinkable thought process, and then you set your stall out as an organization, people will follow behind that because A, they'll be able to understand and make their their behaviors fit into that, as opposed to, I think, what we have at the minute, which is it's easy to say, well, who would be stupid enough 
to click on that? Well, the answer is everybody. So that's that's not even a valid statement, but that's where we're coming from. You know, who would be silly enough to do this and who would be silly enough to do, to do that? Whereas I think if we do approach it from a risk perspective, it really does manifest itself in a much more business-orientated way. And then it allows the organization to devote the resources. And typically, they aren't technological resources. I think that's another thing that, that, that people, apart from the processes, people think it's a tech problem. It really isn't because it really doesn't matter how many firewalls they will get through because they're coming at people in different ways and their social media and through telephone, whatever. And what you have to do is actually bring the people into the overall risk mitigation strategy, bring the people into your response, you know, put them on a war footing, essentially. I want to come back to that. And I want to come back to the the post-mortem inquest piece because, you know, making it all circular, learning from incidents that have just happened, I think is very important. But let's dive right into the epicentre of it now. And something strikes me from hearing you both speak. I think we actually come from fairly similar backgrounds. I used to work in enterprise business continuity and DR as well. And funnily enough, Sarah, 9-11, 20 years ago, was a a really pivotal part for, for that part of the industry and for what I did back then as well. And something that we used to do planning. You know, we would build matrices and we would categorize business systems and services with RTOs, recovery time objectives, recovery point objectives, and we'd specify how often failover and recovery tests needed to be performed. That was great. And I'm sure that that failing to plan, planning to fail mantra, that must apply to cyber incident response just as much as it does data structure, infrastructure. So, Robbie, what do you see going wrong then? You know, what is it about cyber awareness, either that the plans just don't exist or are they not being effectively communicated or not effectively applied? Why is it not working at the moment, do you think? I mean, if you talk about where we were with the disaster recovery, we were largely talking about systems from tape libraries through to fall over data centers. There was just an, and there was industries built up around it and it was very systemized, although it did take, you know, 15, 20 years to to make itself, you know, form itself. I think the problem here is that the people thing is just too damn hard. It really is because you're dealing with very, very clever people. I think that's the other thing is that there's this nefarious, you know, hacker in the hoodie type thing where in actual fact, what we're dealing with almost a, a scale up VC funded best-in-class entity that's, that's you know, so much more agile, using so much more technology and, and making so much more money than you are. And so this is the first time in history where the defenders have the weakness, where before in the past defenders had, had an advantage. The, the bad guys can just basically step over our defenses and, and get in by the people. So I, I think it's it's really hard. For me, I think, again, if you go, we're going to think the unthinkable, then you have to go beyond some of the um, challenges, which is you have to engage people. You have to maybe take risks where not everybody will like it. Because from my experience in, in security, in, uh, the security side of things, once you put controls in place, regardless, people get upset. It, it's a fact. And they spend a lot of time going around these controls. But I think how you get across this is you actually intervene in your overall corporate body you prioritize this as a top-level risk in your organization, and then you invest heavily in, in engaging people and, and treating them like adults. I think that's the key. People really do know how bad this is, and 
if you can connect their private lives, that you know, the fact that they live a digital life as well and connect that to their business life, I think that's the age that, that will allow them to sort of engage and also get that eureka moment. Sarah, what do you see going wrong in the, in the planning phase and the execution of those plans, best laid or otherwise, when things do start to go wrong? I think there's a big problem with the mindset shift. So we touched on risk management. So risk historically has been predicated on something that may happen. But from a cybersecurity perspective, we have to change our mindset to it will happen. It may already be happening right now. So that assume compromise mentality is really critical. And what Robbie was saying is so apt as well is because I very rarely see many companies that really consider the true worst case scenario. And I think when we're thinking about the the scope and scale of the type of attacks, we also have to then bring into the will the persistence and the patience of the attackers as well. So not all of them are financially motivated. They couldn't be motivated by espionage, sabotage, and those type of things. And and I think as well, when we're talking about cybersecurity, no longer just an IT problem. It's an organizational problem, particularly then when you bring into the whole era of digital transformation. So we're kind of seeing this join up between the IT IT, the OT, the IoT networks, but also that interplay as well between our customers and our partners. So we've got this big, huge interconnected parts. And that just means that attack surface is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So, and arguably you can, oh, well, it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. But we do have to kind of assume that compromise is so important and assume they can get access from anywhere at any time. But if we can work backwards, and I think this is where the business continuity element really comes to the forefront, because I always remember thinking about the big picture. That's that's how I was always taught, is understanding how all these things kind of come to play. But if we understand what are the critical assets, what is the critical data, who are the critical people and the locations, then we can kind of then think about rather than trying to boil the ocean, we're then trying to really kind of bring that down into that core of what is really critical, what are we really trying to protect and how we're going to do that. And I think if we can kind of bring it down to that core, that enables us to kind of put some perspective and some investment into the right areas. And that's just, I think this really where we've got to think about in terms of how we can bring all of that information and knowledge to the forefront to enable us to kind of plan effectively, but also really get deeper into what we mean by these kind of worst case scenarios and and how bad is it going to get for us to take action. But coming back to a point that Robbie made a few moments ago in terms of nobody could have foreseen Maybe they could, maybe the warnings were there, but not everyone accommodated for them in their planning. An 18-month outage, essentially office outage for the pandemic. How can you make your plans as flexible, as agile, as responsive, almost no matter what the external influence, the cultural, technological, the cyber attack may be? How can you make sure your planning is going to be effective 
no matter what gets thrown at you. I have another thing that we are, as an industry, really poor at learning lessons, I have to say. And we can sit there and go, well, hindsight is a wonderful tool. But there's also a thing called isomorphic learning, which is your ability to learn from and correlate lessons from different events. So we can't sit here and say, we didn't know there was cyber attacks and these type of things. But even when we think about the pandemic, we could have predicted that this was going to happen. So I remember even in my lifetime, in my career, back in 2009, we were dealing with the swine flu pandemic. And I remember having to put a pandemic to plan at scale and think about how bad it could get and those type of things. Mm -hmm. But even 9-11 could have been predicted to a certain extent. Because when we think about the type of terrorist attacks that were happening at the time, hijacking was the modus operandi of the terrorists. So I have a big problem with people kind of sort of talking about black black swan events. So something that's so big we couldn't possibly have predicted it. Well, I don't I don't actually buy into that as a philosophy. I actually think we have seen these incidents time and time and time again. Our problem is we don't take action. We don't learn the lessons until it's got to such a big problem. We've had such a major event. And then we think, oh, right, well, now is the time <laughs> to take action. So so we do kind of have to think about a lot of this things that's going on. And unarguably, as you sort of said, you can't plan for every single possible conceivable scenario. And we know whatever you plan for isn't a thing that's going to happen anyway. But there are things we can plan for. So we can plan for the effect of an incident. So we can plan for an incident that takes our IT systems down. People can't get into the office. We haven't got our people available. Our key suppliers aren't available. And that is what we're planning for. So yes, it could be a myriad of things that led up to that. But I think if, if history and hindsight has taught us anything, is we should expect the unexpected and we should expect it at scale, I'm afraid. And this is not going to be the last pandemic. It's not going to be the last cyber attack that we're going to see, unfortunately. So plan for the effect, if not the cause, and expect the unexpected, the known unknowns, <laughs> to, uh, to quote that uh, quote again. Robbie, and, and from a cyber security awareness and, uh, and training point of view, uh, again, you know, w w when you're helping your customers to put together campaigns and so on, you can't cover all these specific scenarios, but, but what can you do to put measures in place that will help a workforce no matter what gets thrown at them? That's a good question. So what is animating an organization is depending on the incidents that they're experiencing. And again, it's unique to each organization. Uh, if someone is seeing lots of uh, business email compromise, well, that's the thing they're going to focus on. Or if they're in a, an area where they have problems with people walking in the front door because they're in a particular bad area, then physical security will be a big issue for, for them. But two things that I think actually transform a cyber awareness program. And I, I think that we are moving away from sending out a couple of pieces of e-learning, sending out a few phishing attacks and thinking we're good, tick the box, to really approaching cybersecurity awareness, almost like a marketing, which is it's, it's we're looking for engagement. We're looking to constantly be that 
red pencil and the box of white pencils to get the, the eureka moment from our audience. And the two things I would say to people is if you can get the CEO or one of the senior executives to do a piece to camera that reinforces this is what we're doing, we need your help because this is a real and present danger and we see it that you are key to it. That sort of makes everyone sit up and take notice. And I would put that at the very first, if you're going to have a, like a new 24-month campaign, that's the first thing. Interestingly, the second thing I would do, I would send out the training on what to do in the event of an incident. That would be the first thing I would send out because mm -hmm. it actually creates two scenarios. Number one, it forces you to work out what is it people should do in the events of an incident. So it'll actually force you to go and plan it because you can't come along with a piece of training and go, we think this might work because you've just added to the problems. The second thing is that A, it helps people in the event of the, the unthinkable, but it also says to people, this is, this is real. You know, it's like a, we're going to, we're going to test the fire alarm because you know what, when you hear this, you got, you got to go and do what we told you to do before. And testing the fire alarm actually reminds you that of that training, of that problem, of that potential threat. And so I think people should be trained on what to do in your organization against your particular processes every year. And they should be, it should be the first thing. It keeps mm -hmm. the end result front of mind and then work back from that. What typically happens is people go, you know, our help desk is tortured with passwords. Let's send out password training and password training is really easy and nobody will give out about it. And it's, um, it's a little kumbaya. Whereas actually, again, if you have a executive buy-in via the first uh, piece to camera or some type of, of communicate, even an email out, out from the senior leadership will change behaviors and then have something that is unique to you. Even if it's someone, again, doing a PowerPoint presentation that is recorded, send that out but it has to be something that's unique to you that people recognize, actually, this is how we deal with this in this organization. It changes the actual tone of the overall approach and I think is something that is a catalyst for real change. Coming back to the point that Sarah mentioned a moment ago about learning from events. Hindsight is, is a wonderful thing sometimes. I read a book recently that I'll happily recommend to everyone here called Black Box Thinking. It's by Matthew Said, and it, it looks about how to learn from, well, I, I say learn from failure, learn from things that have happened, whether they were failures or not. And it leans extensively on the aviation industry and how fastidious that has been almost since the beginning about applying learnings from accidents and incidents. Now, with the planning, for, you know, as we're talking about whether it's disaster recovery, business continuity or, or cyber, on paper, it makes a lot of sense to go through a rigorous post-mortem process to make sure that you can learn from what has just happened and build those into the new processes so that same thing may not happen or the response might be better the next time around. Do we see this really happening, Sarah? Is it the same as with the planning piece and the execution of that, whereby it makes sense on paper, but actually it doesn't seem to happen in the real world. Yeah. I, I, as I sort of said, we have a problem with, with really truly learning lessons. And I think the actually the post-incident review part of things is really, really important to verify the plans, the actions, the decisions that we made. Now, I think Robbie made a great point that 
when you're in a crisis situation, you may be not thinking rationally. You know, you've got so much information going on, but you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision quickly. So this is why the plan is so important. Just to kind of guide you is what should be top of mind? What should we be doing? Making sure we've, we've kind of gone through these actions. But arguably, you can only make a decision based on the information available to you at the time. So our job really is to then separate the fact from fiction. So we need as many facts as possible. So what exactly do we know about the situation? What don't we know? What are we making assumptions about? So all the things we don't know, the assumptions, the lack of information is where then we have to go and send people off, in essence, to try and fill those gaps in our knowledge. Because that's only when we have that information, we have facts, we can make valid decisions. But that being said, you know, if you if you are under pressure, particularly if you're in the middle of a cyber attack, if you have to then start to shut your network down, You've got to communicate. You've got to get something out to the media. You've got to get something to your stakeholders. You've got to do all these things. And to a certain extent, time is of the essence. You don't have the luxury of saying, oh, well, I'll get back to you next week when I've, when I've got all my you know, information and those type of things. So that recording of every decision, every action is so important for you to then work backwards and say, okay, well, that action potentially has a consequence. And it can then kind of almost lead to a ripple effect based on the action you took or didn't take at the time, particularly when we're dealing with the safety of people and those type of mm. things. Now, the reason why that post-incident review is so important is so we can, A, go back to the plan and make sure that we've updated it with any of those kind of assumptions and key things is, that we were talking about but also that gap in knowledge and, and that being able to then go back and making sure that we have filled those gaps and those type of things. So why didn't we have the information? Why did we take the decision? Was that decision wrong? And I, th I think we have to consider as well, dependent on the scope and scale of the incident, there may also be a formal post-incident review. There may even be something with law enforcement. So that ability to go back and to record exactly what happened and when it is really important. But I think we should look at it in a spirit as it's intended. As we sort of said, this is not about retrospectively then looking for for holes and people to blame and this, that and, that and the other. The opportunity is where we go next. So we take all of that lessons, the, the hindsight, the all of those things, and that should give us a lesson in foresight with regards to, okay, so how do we turn this into an advantage? How do we get better? How do we, as Robbie was saying, can we can we then use that information to reinforce our education, our learning? So the next time this happens, we can do it better, we're, we're better prepared, all our people know what to do. And it's this kind of constantly evolving scenario where Obviously, we don't want to be in a situation where we're just waiting for an incident to happen, but this is where the value of the exercising and the culture that kind of surrounds all of these things is so critical in that scenario. It, it strikes me how you put it there. The number of different roles there are, you know, you are going to have people who are on the front line trying to work out what has happened, what might happen next, but you also need those people who can 
almost keep a bit of a distance from it and, and look at the bigger picture. People who can say, right, okay, then, well, has anyone thought about that? What about the communications piece? Almost have that emotional detachment because to, to both of your points, when things are going wrong, it's very easy to lose that sight and to be on your kind of fight or flight emotion. So having different people in the team who can fulfill those different positions are, are going to be critical, I think. I think, David, one of the other aspects is that if you actually take a mature, uh, developed approach to this and it's formulated, it actually becomes a competitive advantage because that's really where we're going with this. Would you deal with an organization that has, you know, shoddy practices around cybersecurity? You just wouldn't because we have these extended supply chains and, and we can see what, what COVID has done to those supply chains at the minute with the shortages in, in all these different commodities. It's exactly the same here in that the inherent risk of becoming part of or, or connecting with an, another advisor or, or supplier, it's critical to understand their approach. And so once you come to the conclusion that this is real and you need to embedded in the DNA of your company, that transformation in itself becomes outrageously valuable. And then what happens is the marketing team have to come along and, you know, put it in a value proposition that the sales and the commercial folk can go and actually, you know, make that a competitive advantage within your marketplace. When that happens, that's magic because now you see that, you know, here are the things that our organization stands for. And one of them is, you know, having bulletproof cybersecurity in so much as here's the system and, and here's our processed approach to it. We are almost out of time, Robbie and Sarah. So before we go, what would you say, we, we've covered a lot of different bases today so far, what would you say are your top takeaway points to consider when creating and communicating a cyber instance response plan to your company? Robbie. For me, it's recognized that your cyber response is unique to you. So it, it is encapsulating that in a way that your own people can understand it and, and such that if you did have a, an incident, there's a, a really good chance that they would react in the way that you want it. I think the other thing is that it is getting executives to think the unthinkable and transcending the plausible deniability state through to the conscious state. And in that, that sense, embracing the, the new situation, which is digital is here to stay. If anything, we've fast forwarded 10 years. That means that we need to fast forward our defenses and, and that at the center of it is, is people. So how do you engage your people? How do you make them part of the solution as opposed to the butt of the, the, the problem. Take away, Sarah. Yeah, I think the first one I would sort of talk about is about don't make assumptions. So we have to deal with facts, not speculation or rumor. So it's our objective to really get to the truth and really understand what is going on. I think the second point we've talked about really is then making sure people are aware of their actions and the role that they play within that plan or that scenario. But we also got to be thinking about what is the subsequent actions and be thinking about X number of steps after that as well. So that really has to be part of our planning process is making sure there's a really good understanding about what will happen and when. 
And this requires that constant verification. And I think as, as sort of Robbie was saying, for that testing and exercising, and it has to be dynamic and it has to be reflective of the risks that the organization is facing. And that might be different dependent on the organization. So it's not a one size fits all, but I think the key that for your organization in particular, you have to be able to understand what is your worst case scenario. We then have to consider that whatever we've planned for is potentially going to go wrong. So that ability to pivot your strategy, think on your feet and have that problem solving capability is so important. And I think that really encompasses the whole thing around that sort of incident response crisis management planning that we've been talking about today. A couple of quick shout outs before we go. Robbie, I'm sure your cybersecurity for dummies book contains some insights on, well, uh, incident management and things around that. Absolutely. I wrote that book specifically to give people a playbook on how they would approach engaging people. Where would they start? What are the key aspects of getting executive buy-in? And really how they can sustain vigilance and changing behavior over time. And part of that is what happens if this outrageous, unthinkable thing does happen? And how do you make sure that uh, your people just don't completely panic and do all crazy things? So I think that this book is something that's very valid within the context of, of data breaches and, and how people are central to that. And Sarah, where can people find out more about what you are, are up to and what you're doing? Yeah, well, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn and also Twitter. So I do share a lot of information about cybersecurity, crisis management, but also resilience as well. Super stuff. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you so much, David and Robbie. And thank you too, Robbie. And we look forward to seeing all of you next time. Bye-bye for now. Bye.